Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodek, and I'm here with Mark Mills. And I think this is our third or fourth time. I think, uh, who's counting? I think third. Number three, I think. <laughs> yeah. This is this is the, uh, the, the pinnacle, the apotheosis. Here we go. Well, um, the people don't know this, but just before we started recording, I showed you that I'm now starting reading The Cloud Revolution. So it's possible, I was thinking, well, there's no way we can cover it. This book is like 300 some pages. And... We can't cover that in one call, although we're probably going to talk about other stuff this time. Um, I was hoping to cover that article that I sent you from Tom Murphy. Yeah, I read it. But we also had a whole bunch of other things. Yeah. And it sounds like that might be a good place to start. And Sure. Uh, should I give a little context for the listeners? Yeah, you should, because it, the article really is um, a good example of what I think of as modeled, he's a smart guy, it's well-written, uh, modeled thinking. And it's in, and in fact, article like that, but that way of thinking is why, a, a large measure why I wrote my book. All right, so I'll give context for what it is. So uh, long-time listeners know Tom Murphy has been a guest on the podcast and he's a physicist now just retired from UCSD, went to Caltech uh, and he does, or he did active measurements of astronomical things astrophysical things. And he's also influenced by limits to growth. And he wrote a, and he also has this pod, uh, blog called do the math, which I really like. Cause he sits in, like, he figures out like, what if we put a giant satellite in space with send laser stuff to, can we get energy that way? Or can we, and he, he, he would look at all these things and do the math and figure out what works, what doesn't work. Then he wrote this book, a textbook for a class that he taught for non-science majors undergrads at UCSD on energy and how to, uh, energy, I think it was called energy on a finite planet. I forget. And so he recently, one of the earliest pieces that he wrote was doing the math on growth. What happens if we keep growing and there's an energy component to it from physics perspective, he concludes that we heat up the earth very fast, like within a few human lifetimes. And I shared it with you to get your thoughts on it because I I don't know many people who, if they if they could understand it, and I, I mean anyone could understand what he's written this paper I think, but it's going to be a lot easier if you have a background in physics or you know some hard science. So the people I know who would understand it easily wouldn't care, and the people who'd care wouldn't understand it easily, and so it's not a whole lot of overlap. But you are, you're both. <laughs> That's, you know, it's the, the classic Venn diagram. Yes. Uh, but that's true. You can draw Venn diagrams for everything. I love Venn, di Venn diagrams. They're great. And I would think that, uh, I think that it wasn't new to you, but I think that it was, I think that you will see it differently than me. And I'm looking for new ways of understanding things. Am I missing things? Am I, um, is there things I could share with others and things like that? So uh, you, you read it, you've processed it. I, I'd love your thoughts. Yeah, it's a good piece. I mean, and of course, uh, he's a smart guy. So there's much to agree with and there's much to disagree with uh, in, in, because it has to do with how the f argument is framed. Um, so when he writes uh, correctly, and I'll simplify, I think he would agree, There's there are no systems in the universe that we know that can grow forever at a compound growth rate of whatever, X, 2%, 1.5%. doesn't matter whether it's a star, an economy, bacteria cultures, you know, it make, it, 
there are limits to that. That feature of growth always has a limit because you get to ridiculous outcomes. I mean, if you, this is, there's a very old story on this. Um, I'm sure he knows it. You probably know it, which has to do with, I think it's, it's an apocryphal story. You know, it's one of these, um, it's not a child's a fable, but where the, the mathematician back in ancient Egyptian times is asked to help the, the emperor with a problem and he wants to pay him handsomely if he solves this particular problem. Uh, and he said, no, I just want you to pay me in uh, one grain of rice, but I want you to uh, double the payment for every square on the chessboard. And uh, I'll take the total at the end of the 64, I think it's 64 squares, right? Yeah. Um, and of course, if you do that exponential uh, growth, as a geometric, I guess, not just, but anyway, it's it's more wheat than exists uh, on the planet. <laughs> it just, you can't, you can't, he w- but it, it didn't. It wasn't obvious to the emperor that he was going to be giving away his kingdom very quickly before he got the end of the multiply, multiplying. So, long way of saying yes, exponential growth rates have a limit. And so, when he, when Tom Murphy writes that that uh, if we keep increasing our energy consumption, um, and of course by that he links it to the economy. If you keep having economic growth, it drives energy consumption growth. Do the two percent a year. Uh, before long, you consume more energy than the flux of the entire star that keeps our Earth alive. And if you keep going for another thousand years, you consume more energy than are all the stars in the Milky Way galaxy. All, all true. It's it's a these are amusing calculations. They're they really are irrelevant. <laughs> they really are <laughs> because first of all, you know nothing ever grows like that, and that's not how humanity will grow. It just doesn't require arithmetical calculation to show that that's impossible. The The question that's more relevant is how much growth can there be yet, economic growth and energy material growth, before humans essentially voluntarily don't keep proliferating? And we, are, we already know that that's happened. I mean, the current UN forecasts have a population growth rate that's peaking sometime in the next century or so. If people have fewer children as they get wealthier, it's an old trend. I don't know if it's a permanent trend, but it's certainly a longstanding trend. So the, the different question that's more important, especially for time frames that have any meaning, which is, let's just say, the next 100 years, 200 years, but 1,000 years is totally irrelevant to planning or even to guess what we can or couldn't do in the physics of occupying the planet because I, for one, would say it'll be new physics. We're going to figure other things out that um, are quite different than we, we know today. The presumption that we have discovered all all the laws of the universe, pretty high-level hubris, I think. But who knows? You can't prove, can't prove a negative. But anyway, the, the real question is uh, sort of two or three parts to it. Let's just use a number of, I don't know, uh, 20 billion people, because right now there's roughly seven. We think the world's population is going to peak long before 20 billion. But let's just take 20 billion as the peak number. Can the the planet Earth sustain 20 billion people? Uh, A, does it have the resources for that to do it, quote, sustainably? And B, can those 20 billion people at some point in the future uh, enjoy a, a kind of wealth and lifestyle that the 
one billion enjoy today, which is most of the Western world, and can the one billion enjoy more wealth in the future, the, the, the 2% GDP growth rates going into the future, can that happen for the next century or two? That's really what's sort of, that's the only question that has any meaning of utility when it comes to policy, because making policies for for a thousand years from now would be, I mean, it's sort of pretty obviously silly. I mean, people can't imagine anybody making policies a thousand years ago for what we do today. But anyway, we have a lot of people, a lot of people have enough hubris that they can do that, but I don't think most people would agree that's a good idea to make people today behave in ways that will impact how humans might live a thousand years from now. So the one to 200 year timeline, then you're, you're talking about very different things. And then the uh, questions of whether we were, whether we're exhausting the capacity of the earth to provide the metals, minerals, and fuels is easier to answer. And it's unequivocally clear that we are not even close to exhausting the capacity uh, to get and sustain and sustainably out. That's a whole separate definition of what sustainable means, but just from an absolute quantity perspective, there's no question we could provide the minerals and the food and the energy needed because the quantities aren't that crazy. We can look at food. Food's an easiest one, and then energy is related. I mean, the difference between a subsistence diet and a uh, sort of starvation slash subsistence diet and a diet that constitutes gluttony is about two twofold the calories per year per person average. It really is not crazy to think we can we can increase uh, we can double the ability to produce food with technology we have and can foresee without using any more land for two or three times more people. It's not it's not a crazy idea uh, bio, biochemically or or sustainably. So that's not going to be a limit for 20 billion people or 10 billion people. The ability to produce the quantity of basic atoms we need in the form of minerals, copper, nickel, um, iron, ore, all the things that we have to extract from the earth to build things. The idea that we'll run out of that stuff is also, you know, demonstrably, you know, I won't say silly, but it's not, it's just not there. We, we are running out of our willingness to mine what we need right now, but the idea that we won't we won't find or develop technologies that allow us to extract at lower ore grades, that is lower levels of concentration in the crust for the materials, it is we already know we can do these things. Uh, they are higher cost at the moment, but that's it's true of lots of technologies. But just from, I'm just looking at it from the viewpoint of absolute quantities. The quantities of the metals and materials in the Earth's crust, it just the just the top ten kilometers is vastly greater than anything humanity could consume. So it's just, it's really an interesting exercise to, to extrapolate out the, to the thousand years um, for materials and energy consumption. I mean, this is what Freeman Dyson did with the Dyson sphere, right? This is his idea in his science fiction, end up having a pretty cool novels written by people like, like David, you know, like Niven, Larry Niven, where you, you imagine that stars appear to disappear from the firmament. One of the one of the searches for extraterrestrial intelligence, you doubtless know better than I do, is you try to you just basically want to look for what would amount to a black body radiator instead of a star, because what that civilization it would have done is built a sphere around the sun to capture 100 percent of the sun's energy to energize its civilization. 
and a civilization lived on the inside of that sphere. Pretty, you know, pretty cool, pretty cool idea. Makes good good science fiction novels, but doesn't have any bearing into what we're going to be doing in the next hundreds of years um, on Earth. So that's that's sort of where I, I get the bifurcation. And then the, the whole separate issue, which is woven into this, is the economic growth question. Can you can you keep getting growth? Uh, can, can economic growth, can GDP growth, whatever measure you want to use, grow faster than um, the resource consumption growth? And of course, he shows his first graph, something that's a very longstanding trend, which is the declining use of energy per unit of economic output. That's been going on for quite some time. That's a, um, a combination of technology and a shift in what constitutes wealth activity, as he correctly points out. And, and, it, and he writes, and it's, it's fun and kind of amusing, that if, that if you continue the trend, that means ultimately that food and fuel are free, and right? And if food and fuel are free, then they, um, you know, that's sort of like a ridiculous outcome. And if it were, then he writes, one person could buy all the fuel in the world and hold everybody hostage. Okay, it's it's yeah, I like that. it's kind of cute, but it's not it's not it's never fr- nothing's ever free. But we are already on track to that kind of dynamic. But in the real world, uh, by that we're on track to that kind of dynamic because the the, the share of uh, the Western economies that are tied up in supplying food and fuel is about fifteen percent. For most of human history, it was eighty five to ninety percent. So we've already moved food and fuel into the twilight of economies in the West. Uh, without, except for episodes of foolishness, like we're going through now, where we get energy uh, and food inflation, which which is entirely self-inflicted. It's not because we're running out of stuff. It's totally self-inflicted. And the self-infliction usually ends because markets and people don't like the high prices and it gets fixed, uh, sometimes painfully, sometimes not so painfully. So that, but that conflation of the two um, sort of confuses the argument because it is relevant uh, how we, you know, what shares of the economy constitute the expansion that that we call wealth. It creates more time to do things other than survival. It all everything to do with entertainment and convenience, travel, healthcare, protecting the environment. These are all costs that come to have come to dominate our economy. Things we spend money on rather than Mere, mere survival, getting enough food and fuel. And, and that's a good thing, and that's going to continue. And so then the question is intellectual one. How much how much more of those things can there be? I mean, at some point, does it saturate? We don't get any more growth. Do we saturate the appetite for entertainment and um, healthcare? I suppose, I mean, in theory, all these things have limits. But again, that's qualitative question. I, don't, I think it's demonstrably the case, obviously. There's lots of people who don't have any of the things that we take for granted. So you've got to get growth from there. But the, the point he's really getting to, and it's a reasonable question, is that in a society that already has lots of that, entertainment, good health, you know, better healthcare than everybody else, um, travel, luxury, all the things that aren't survival-based that constitute the economy, how much more of that stuff do we want? Will people want or will we create? Because that that's the stuff that comprises the wealth growth, because obviously, if we have an economy where there is no shortage of food, there's no real significant growth in wealth associated with producing food, because the food supply itself really, at a fundamental level, only grows with population, and the population is growing 
very slowly or is flat. So why there's not you can't point to that physical resource as a source of wealth growth for the economy like it was for so many centuries. So all those things are true, but it it leads to a sort of a mindset which I think is um, inappropriate and even destructive that people think that we are facing imminent limits and we should impose on people today. The experts think we're facing imminent limits and we should impose on other people today limits to their aspirations and what they want to do. And uh, that's where I get off the train because I think it's, I don't think it's A, it's necessary. And I think, I think, as you know, that it's B, immoral. Long, long answer to uh, that, that, that uh, uh, mini rant is probably as long as his article, but my apologies. I am going to write about this some more. I haven't written about it in a while, the limits, the limits, the growth uh, stuff, because, um, you know, it sort of went away for a while as being popular. And it's certainly back now. And I guess the other thing I would say where I would disagree but I know he may not, he may, he and I may not disagree, but he concludes by saying something which I disagree with the implications, which is that the experts, or the academics have a special responsibility um, in terms of uh, helping humanity. So, yeah, you know, sure, on the face of it, I agree with that. I mean, because people understand things have the obligation to explain things, but it presumes, it presumes a lot that the quote academics uh, are right, first of all. They, we can, we don't have to spend any time showing how often academics have been wrong about these kind of big macro pictures over history. Uh, but this time they're right, of course. And the implication here is that they should, you know, he's delicate about how he puts it. You know, they should help define how we should grow. And okay, I'm all in, help out. But it sort of feels and smells an awful lot like, you know, we're going to, you know, we, we understand something that you benighted people don't know about the future. So we're going to control your life today. And that that particular risk, let's say, uh, is is high because there's a lot of people who feel that way. I don't know if he feels that way, but there's an awful lot of people who feel that way and make it very clear they feel that way, that there, that there needs to be world governance. And we have to um, we have to control people's lives to stop them from consuming because we can't we can't keep doing this. And that's that's a very big leap from if we keep growing at 2% energy consumption in 2,000 years, there won't be enough energy in the galaxy. It's a fun calculation. And I love those kind of calculations, by the way. I mean, they're they're just great fun. There's a, another book out on on things like that. You know, how much how much would the solar system weigh if, if the diameter, of the, if the sphere that comprises the solar system was full of soup? <laughs> what would that weigh? <laughs> Yeah, it's an interesting calculation. And the guy who did that, I forgot his name, uh, observed that if you did that anyway, that amount of mass would, would of course, the, gra- the gravitational pull on that would lead to becoming, you know, a black hole pretty fast. A black hole, black hole of soup. In other words, the soup would get way too hot. <laughs> <laughs> but it doesn't, you know, that, my point is that kind of calculation, which is really fun, at least for me, and people who are sort of techie dweebs who are like, you know the physics attached to these big numbers has doesn't have any meaning except to illustrate a truth that once you have unbounded assumption about growth rates, all growth rates must end. So you don't need, yeah. So you're not, you didn't get caught. Some people get caught thinking 
well, this calculation doesn't have to do with reality, like my world, so it's not really relevant. But I think you're saying it's it's extraneous because it's just showing like this way outer envelope that isn't really relevant. Right. Or rather, rather you whether it's relevant or not, you already know the point. You just can't grow forever. All exponential growth sure. eventually of course. transitions into some other realm of, of saturation or, yeah. Sure. But you have to know uh, when that happens and whether it's relevant to the question that's being asked. If the question is, can humanity keep can humanity keep having a growth rate, not 2% of GDP, but let's just, I'll pick a bigger number. Could, could, could civilization return to a higher economic growth rate uh, sustainably? And on that, I'm on the camps that sure. The, the issues that, uh, because they're not constrained by the variables that this is exploring, which is sufficient supply resources or energy. There are certainly plenty of resources and energy to sustain that. The different question would be, would they be available at a price markets would pay in the timeframes that are meaningful? You know, if it requires imagining a technology that doesn't exist yet, then you say, well, that would constrain the growth. Well, he's not saying that we'd run out of material. This is a big thing that um, I don't see anyone getting is that he's not saying we would run out of materials. He's saying if all that we, if the only output was heat and. Oh, I saw that, but no, he, then. Yeah, yeah. Then just the heat alone in, I think it was like 400 years, we'd be boiling temperature. Of course, he's not yeah. suggesting we would reach boiling temperature. But if you take a little bit of the sun and put it within our atmosphere, fusion, then even if nothing else, even if everything else works fine, we get all the clean water we want, we get all the um, materials we want, we can't get rid of the heat fast enough. And that happens in like, if that happens in 400 years to boiling temperature, then everything else, I, I don't know any way you're on that. Well, first of all, he sort of dismisses the heat argument in some way, as I read it, is not really. Every energy transformation involves waste, which is always ends up as heat by, by definition. But the, if, as he points out correctly, the, and he uses the example I use in my older book, The Bottom as Well, which is the luminous efficacy of different forms of artificial lumin, lumin, illumination. We, we get better and better at uh, taking the, uh, minimizing the waste in, in energy transactions. And there's a lot, there's an awful lot of headroom yet to get a lot better. Uh, and we know that based on existing engineering. So I think the static, uh, the, all, what that would do is just, by definition, there's always going to be waste heat. What that would do ultimately is just push off in time. The arithmetic calculations are some 400 years to, I don't know, say it's a thousand years. But again, I would say it's, it's interesting intellectual point, but well, he's not, he's not saying that it's going to stay the same. He's saying that it's going to keep lowering and lowering, but it can't go to zero. No, it can't go to zero. That's right. And so event, eventually you end up with uh, demand for energy that's not sustainable. If, if the relationship between energy demand and economic growth stay in sort of the pattern he's, he's set up. That's true. I mean, arithmetically, that's true. We're talking a very long time into the future, you know, a thousand years. I mean, who knows? I think he's making the assumptions that you're talking about. I think he's already done that. No, no, I see it. He's, he's saying stretching out as far as we can, it's, it's a couple hundred. No. Let me go back here. I'm looking, I'm looking at it right now. So not a couple hundred years. That would, that. Because that second part with those other graphs about the curve with the curves. Yeah. 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 I'm looking at it. It's showing how much we devote. I'm just looking at it, but it's, it's no, uh, 
it's it's just not <laughs> the idea that the, we, the the waste heat from human activities is going to uh, create a bound a, a bounding limit to what the economic growth of society could be then the population it just doesn't pass the the sniff test if you like it's just I, i'm just not buying he he goes i understand what you're saying goes through for example putting electric motors are 80 to 90 percent efficient right then they so you can't you can't double the efficiency of electric electric motors that's true but this the, uh, the simplistic analogy i would use would be the equivalent of observing the dawn of the uh, you know aviation where we have the the uh, aerodynamic efficiency of propeller driven airplanes and you you simply can't go beyond certain velocities and certain efficiencies because they're propeller driven until the invention of the you know the jet engine so conflating and both of them have thermodynamic efficiencies I'll, I'll grant you that but the the efficiency of one form of transportation in terms of fuel per mile uh, it made a step function change because we changed the technology we changed the phenomenology we did something different. So, I mean, I'm just not, I, I'm just, it doesn't, once you have to use as an example of what the limits are, today's technologies against forecasts of what will happen in hundreds of years, then, then the whole logic falls apart. And if it's hundreds of years, then the logic falls even further apart with respect to what we should do today. I mean, I would go, I would fall back to a very simple economics principle that it, until economic growth goes zero or negative, which it hasn't, and there's no evidence it's going to go negative that we're going to be, except briefly in depressions, which is what a depression by definition is, taking actions today to do something that's based on, on making a forecast anchored in the technologies that we are aware of and the physics limits that we are aware of over hundreds of years is, is again, I'd say interesting, but completely disconnected from what one would do today, the actions one would take. This is where, again, that's why I get, I get off the train once we, once we get to implying that that suggests that we should be doing things governmentally and organizationally uh, that are profoundly different than what we're doing today. He, I mean, he writes the entire financial, economic, political, social system will be forced to undergo radical change. Okay. Yeah, he's not proposing that. He's just saying... He said it, he said it will be forced. Okay. Uh, I don't think so. But maybe if he means in 500 years, that's okay. But how, how does that... Back to where we began in, in your own personal life, life, <laughs> lifestyle exploration... Your your exploration of how to reduce your footprint using what you know how to well, do. Well, hold on, hold on. I want to stick with his with his stuff. So I, I mean, he writes here. Well, all right. I don't want to go into too much detail because we can't really read and talk at the same time. But he says, if, for example, fifty percent of economic activity is tied to physical resources, a hundred years later, only five percent of the economy will present it. He's saying he's getting in two hundred years it'd be 05 percent. He's projecting this to get smaller and smaller and smaller. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see that. So I think he's taking that into account and. Now, if he leads to a conclusion that I don't like, and he makes recommendations I don't like, I don't see how that changes the conclusion. If he, I mean, if he finds a result and I say, oh, but then he uses that result to promote a policy, I don't like that policy. No, no, I don't, no. I can't say that that affects the... No, I'm, look, I'm, what I'm saying is the forecast, the idea that, set, set the policy aside. And, and the problem is, of course... The policy here is relevant because people 
take these ideas and try to implement policies today based on ideas. That's what policies are, they're ideas. So it's important to understand, broadly speaking, that we're talking about timeframes that should be, uh, I would stipulate, irrelevant to policies today. That would be the position I'm taking. So I, I'm agreeing with you that whatever whatever the conclusion from this is, it's, it involves assumptions and timeframes that are disconnected from policy. Well, there I don't... I... And and he's linking it to policy. So I'm not saying I disagree with the policy per se. I am. I'm saying that the linkage to policies today for things of this character going into hundreds of years in the future is, I think, a mistake. All right. So I you said a lot of things. And I, the main thing when you first responded, what I picked up was that and, – and let me see if I got it right <laughs> – the population is projected to stop growing and it, we have the potential to all be comfortable at some level where we stop growing that as far as material resources are concerned, we have plenty now yeah, and that we will have plenty then. Yeah. So you're, you're foreseeing a future in which the population has stopped growing. Everyone's comfortable. There's material plenty and now, here's the part that I, I, I don't buy is that at that point, we would stop growing. If it, when we're comfortable, it seems that we keep growing. If, we're in, if we grow under conditions now where we're comfortable and there's material plenty, I don't see why if things change so that with more people, we could be just as comfortable and just as have just as material plenty, I would expect that we would grow again then. Yeah, but I'm not disagreeing. And that's my point. I think, I think the idea of what we call economic growth will continue, even if the physical population growth saturates. Well, I'm saying that that would grow too. Well, the physical population, well, it might. It might. I mean, that's one of the interesting disputes that's not really being fully explored is the assumption that the population growth rate, the, not the great, the actual absolute population will peak and decline. That's sort of the UN's forecast, right? They put another one out recently. So uh, I, it's far enough in the future that it's going to be really hard to know whether that trend is, is true or not for a long time. But I agree with you. It's disputable whether or not as more and more people get comfortable. If you have a world where we don't just have, have functionally eradicated poverty, which you know, abject poverty, which, is, which has happened in terms of our measures of what we call abject poverty have collapsed. Uh, it doesn't mean there's an income disparities, but what we call abject poverty the inverse of that would be the you know the levels of comfort that people want and enjoy as that expands maybe the un's wrong maybe population growth rate uh, tilts back up at some point a century or two from now yeah i think that if if anyone's assuming that techno if anyone's not taking into account new technologies and and how things will be in the future it's it's those projections i i can't see i don't see a past any history showing that humans, when comfortable with plenty around them, choose to in, choose not to grow the population and the economy. Well, they do. And if, if they can choose that in the future, why, would, why couldn't we choose that now? And would it, if it's possible then, would it not be easier now? Well, no, it'd be hard, it's harder now than in the future because the, but first back up, the, the, the UN is correct in pointing to data, but the problem is the, cause and effect, setting aside what the cause is, the data 
do show quite clearly that as countries, including ours, move out of um, abject poverty to what we call, you know, just regular poverty to middle class and have a, as the GDP average rises, the fertility rates, population growth rates decline in every country in in the world for the last uh, 150 years. So that's been going on for some time. And I agree with you that when you look at that, ask why is that going on? There's all kinds of, you know, serious psychology and pop psychology about, you know, people have lots of children because they need the they need the labor. That's the that's the proposition that was put forward. Uh, and of course, people have choices about have not having children now, and they a lot of them exercise those choices because they because of obvious advent of both knowledge and birth control. But I, you know, I think I told you, and you'll find it buried in my book later that there are data that was predates the COVID lockdown. So, but these are studies done by Pew in 2019 that showed the uh, number of children for women, which is the key measure, uh, is tilting back up uh, for the very top um, quintile that the, the West's really wealthy families, by wealthy, I don't mean billionaires, but as you know, the sort of the, not quintile, but maybe the top 5%, the, the, the wealthiest, the wealthiest cohort families are having bigger families than the merely well-off. And it's a reversal of the trend. Now, whether that trend holds up, you know, over time, it's pretty recent, it's like over the last decade, but it's fascinating. I, I almost decided to do a whole chapter on that in my book, and I didn't because it's a, but it it's interesting because it, to your point, it may answer the question at some point is enough people have enough wealth. Maybe, you know, everybody's had kids knows having children is expensive these days, but when you have enough wealth, the decision is no longer an economic decision. It's personal decision, not economic at all, uh, because you have enough wealth you can afford. It's not really, it doesn't become, uh, it, it's not heavily weighted. It's an economic decision, let's say. So I, I was intrigued by that, and it sort of, to some extent, confirmation bias. It, it confirmed my suspicion that the trend might not hold because we don't have any data over history with such large populations being so well off. But anyway, I come back to the point of what, where, where I digress from the, the interesting exercise that there are limits to economic growth and physical carrying capacity. They, I think they're related, but different enough things because to his point and your point, the forces of the economy that are tied up with survival, physical survival, those portions do shrink in, in uh, relative terms. And the rate at which they grow, just you could do the bounding experiment, assume that we, we have a perfect way to, with no no, with no losses as a first order, uh, getting materials and supplying energy. But if the population doubles or triples, it goes tenfold, whatever the number is. The physical, the call of physical resources, food and fuel, to do the things that make it possible for a population to survive, those are not pro- those are not problem to survive to, to supply. Uh, the question then is, what are the physical resource requirements? 
of the features of the economy that are growing, the, the features of the economy that are creating this this 2% GDP growth rate. They're obviously not the food and fuel parts because, as he showed correctly, they delink from GDP growth rate. They, you need less food and fuel per dollar of GDP. That's because more of the, econo- the economy that's growing is attached to things that are have a, have a, have a lower physical and ener- energy component. You know, entertainment being watching movies is a lower uh, energy to be simplistic, right? Or so, what what are those things, and what are the limits to their capacity to expand, and what are their what's their call on energy? And I think that's my point is where we we get a disconnection from knowing what those things will be and what people will want. Uh, I think they'll want things that we don't want today. It, it maybe sort of obvious to say because it's very hard to imagine. What will be considered an entertainment or a luxury in the future, other other than the, you know more of the same, but there are different things. We have different things than people in the past. But once more, the model that is hard uh, because you got to go because you have to you have to imagine things that don't exist that haven't been invented. You can model like he did the assumption that you move in. That's why we called it in our book the twilight of fuel, the consumption of fuel and the materials associated with, you know, disappears into the twilight. It becomes a smaller, smaller share. But we're talking very long timeframes again. We're talking hundreds of years. Just to begin to have these things have salience to what I think would be policy considerations, salience relevant to the way he's phrasing it, that we're going to require radical changes in all the infrastructures of society, you know, political and otherwise. If you pick a far enough point in the future, sure. I just think that part that point is so far in the future that it doesn't call on people today to have a debate about how to radically change our society. But that's the debate that's going on because of quote climate change, as you well know. Uh, and that's I, I get that. I'm not unaware of that. <laughs> it's the problem is that then takes you down a different path, a different debate than the one he's framed out. He hasn't really he hasn't framed the climate change debate at all, which is good. It's the proper way to take this thing. All right. If I understand, I'll see, let me see if I get it right. What you're saying, so I understand it, is that the population is leveling off, and at the, at the moment there's only so much energy people can use, and so as it levels off, and we're lowering. Well, put only so much food people can consume. That's just that's different than. But go ahead. Okay. There's only so much food people can use, uh, or can eat, can can consume. You can consume a lot more energy with the same food if we let's you know do the obvious. If everybody really wanted to fly to the moon for entertainment, if that were possible, uh, it's not. But if it were, then the energy footprint of that person in the future is clearly a lot higher than the person today, even though they have the same food footprint. That's my that's the, so. I'm saying the things that are essential for survival, the food and fuel for survival, that that is bounded by. This the physical physiology and nature of human beings it sort of becomes ends up being tied to the physical size of population. It can't grow faster than that. That part of it, which is what he's saying too, by the way. Okay, so people, the population will grow to a certain amount. People, the the necessities for life are bounded and can't grow past a certain amount. I mean, once the population stops growing, that stops growing. Yeah, assuming it assuming it does, but yeah, right. Then they can use energy for other things. Yeah, but other things tend to be using. History shows that they're using less and less. Per, per unit of GDP. Per unit of GDP. But there's an absolute increase 
in the quantity, quantity of energy, again, the, the simplistic thought experiment is there's no energy used for flying. It was much more energy efficient for people to take, uh, you know, sailing ships before the dawn of steam and then the dawn of aviation. But you only had energy being used for flying when you invented the airplane, obviously. So uh, there's, a, there's a future where there are other activities, things that get invented that generate new new forms of energy consumption. The computer is a good example by itself, setting aside its other effects, economic effects. from Just from an infrastructure perspective, the emergence of computation at scale as a utility function created a new vector for energy demand that hasn't existed in human history. So what so what does that mean for the total economic total economic growth will keep may keep growing but may not keep growing we're not really sure we just know that the the necessities for life and the population will will stop at some point yeah i think that's i guess if i yeah being if i were bifurcating the argument into the, the two forces he, i think he does is that the portions of the of of an of resource requirements associated with survival of a human being that they can live and live with some degree of comfort you can bound that by just you know the number of people because there's not there's not a huge huge change in how much you, again you can't if everybody eats the way we eat, it doubles you know it's a, it's a 2x difference it's not a two you don't get 2000% growth rates in food consumption because you can't eat that much food there's no way to do it so it's a, it's a, and it's the same would be true for things like energy and materials used for clothing. Uh, and you could make silly assumptions that everybody wants to live in a house the size of the Empire State Building, but people tend not to want to do that. You know, most people don't. So you can bound the materials needed for housing, I mean, with, with some reasonableness. But that, if you, if you did those things and did it in a backward calculation, you wouldn't get to the materials and energy assumptions society has today. Because we use a lot more than that, given the growth that's occurred, the economic growth that's occurred in areas other than that. And so, but there, the one is easy. The other is, the other assumes a lot about both human behavior, the population of the future. But again, that's a sort of easy one. You could bound it. I mean, there's clear biological boundaries to the, you know, number of children women can have and family, even if they wanted lots more kids, they, you know, there's those, those are, those can be bounded too over these very long, big timelines. So I, I think you're, so the, the population levels off, the necessities for life level off, yeah. the other stuff, entertainment, people may want, I mean, and even if people want Empire State Buildings and for outhouses and yeah. are taking uh, five-hour showers of the hottest water they can stand, it's still finite. I mean, it's still it's still going to level off. Exactly. Right. Now, they could start spending money on other things, or they could, they could all want to start flying to the moon. That could, in principle, be unbounded. But I think you're saying that that one, that growth is slow enough, or rather that we, this, that growth is slow enough relative to our technological change that... Or two things. One, it'll that will growth will be slow enough that we can probably figure out what to do about it. And it also might just cap off anyway. Right. And there's another effect, which is that each thing that we're doing is less and less carbon or uh, pollution intensive or resource intensive. Right. That even that contribution is, is shrinking all the time. Sure. 
so that by the time that would be a problem, the advance of technology and so forth, it's probably not that big of a, it, it's, I don't want to say not that big of a deal, but we'll, we'll see it coming. We'll be able to solve it. Right. It's, it's, you know, you can't prove the future because in the past that's been the case. The, the, the stresses are manageable because they don't, they don't require making assumptions that are impossible in, in the physics we know, but they, re, they do require changes, in some case, step function changes to manage. But it's all, this is all bounded by, because we're talking about people, uh, it's all bounded by the realities of what it means to be a human. Humans, humans only live, you know, as you'll see later in my book, the, I use the million hour line. Is it, people are born, and so far, there's no evidence that humans can live longer than a million hours. There's only uh, like a hundred documented cases of people living more than a million hours. And some of those are pretty suspect. And what, what happens, it just seems like the biological machine is designed uh, in whatever way it's designed. It operates for a million hours. That's 114 years, naked four months or three months. I forgot exactly. It's right around there. Um, the months I forgot. It's, but anyway, so you make choices about how to use the hours. So if you do, if you use the hour to, to instead of taking a ten hour shower to fly to the moon because you have access to a rocket in the future, then those hours are obviously going to be more energy intensive than heating water. With the physics we know, uh, if we dis if there's such a thing as anti gravity and we discover it and there's a way to to uh, to not you know to trick to trick gravity, then maybe maybe not. I don't know. Uh, that's you know that. We're moving into science fiction land. So if we stay out of science fiction land, you do know that you can bound these things by virtue, first of all, of the million hours. People make decisions of what to do with their time. We don't always agree on what everybody else chooses to do with their time. But at the societal level, it's pretty easy to model these things, right? If If you're not spending time surviving, you're spending time either, you know, flying for vacation to Italy or gardening or you know riding around on your motorcycle that's your, your your whatever the stuff is all of it involves material use and energy but it's always a trade-off by definition because there's there's it's you're not doing one thing you're doing another they're not they're not additive in the sense it's a behavioral thing so you have to begin to guess a little bit about human psychology the only way you can do that is to look at backwards at what's happened to societies with new technologies well, I, I think where you're getting with human behaviors, it's far enough in the future that we shouldn't that to think to try to project from to there and from now, it's not worth it, and it doesn't change what we should do here and now. Right, exactly. It's interesting. I mean, it really it's kind of fun stuff, and it really is intellectually interesting. But not, most of the time, it doesn't tell you anything about what you should do in the here and now. And by here and now, I don't mean just this next month. But, you know, I mean, in the time, kind of time frames, it's reasonable for businesses and governments to, to plan and do things, which are, let's say, multi-decadal. It's not like just quarter to quarter for a corporate reporting. Uh, but in the multi-decadal time frames, we know an awful lot about what's possible, what's not. Very narrowly bounded, both good and bad. <laughs> but it makes these exercises of saying we can't keep growing at the rate we're going to grow forever, intellectually interesting, but they don't, they're not informative. And that's why I keep coming back to they're not informative because it can't tell you something useful about timeframes that matter to planners unless 
unless the really hidden agenda, and I don't mean this on his part, I'm just saying if and it may be subconscious hidden agenda is, I'm really so worried about climate change that I'm looking for another way to excuse world governance. Because once, once, we, once we walk that path and link it to policy, and again, the linkage is here in his piece. He's not recommending that we do things, but it's true that if you get to a point where the capacity for human beings to actually extract enough energy from the, the universe that we live in with the physics we have can't be expanded, Yep, something will change. You bet. <laughs> I mean, that's our, we're so far away from that. Uh, it's breathtaking. I mean, even using the clunky technologies that we think are advanced today. So I, I come to a different conclusion. I, I think I think from your reaction that I did basically understand where you're coming from or, or you read of it. And so can I, I'm going to share what my read of it is that – if that's okay? Sure. Yeah, no, of course, of course. Okay. So the if the population grows, the population is growing. If we reach a state where if we keep growing, if the economy keeps growing, let's then it needs energy. If the energy comes only from fossil fuels, mm-hmm. we got a pollution problem. And that's not a several hundred year problem, that's like a decades problem or less. If we switch away from fossil fuels to, well, what put us in touch was the big problems with what other people call renewable, green, and uh, clean energy sources, which if I do that, I generally put quotes around them because I don't consider them renewable, green, or, um, or clean. But say we switch to nuclear, or say we switch to, if we switch to nuclear, then suddenly we have the global warming stops becoming a problem. We do have some, there could be other problems, but they're gonna be relatively small. What if we get all the way to fusion? Then there's very few other problems, but I cannot see, I, I, I see whatever assumptions the UN puts in, whatever we have saying that the population is gonna level, those assumptions are gonna change at that point. And I can only see us growing. I don't see humans having plenty of energy that's cheap and the only pollution is heat, which they can't really sense. I, I can't, I, I can only see us stopping growing if we choose to do it. And I don't know how that would be done. So I just see that growth continuing. I can't see either we grow and it becomes more miserable <laughs> and that leads us to stop growing or if it becomes more comfortable and convenient, I see it accelerating the growth. Yeah. Now, I'm not trying to win an argument. I'm just saying this is where, no, no, I, get, yeah, where no. I conclude. Uh, so I agree. So if, if, if growth becomes unsustainable in, this, in, the, in the correct semantic sense of the word, uh, if you consume too many of the resources that are, are not available to supply for whatever, whatever reason, they'll get expensive. They get expensive both in financial terms and other terms, geopolitical and you know, environmental impacts. Using land, you know, polluting water, whatever the whatever the metrics are, that makes it unsustainable by definition. So I agree. So that will that will that will self limit. Then uh, I, I agree with you. And if it doesn't happen, in other words, if we if we are able to supply energy and resources and materials at lower or declining costs, on average, 
then I agree with you. I don't I don't see why people will um, choose to stop growing both in absolute terms, the number of the number of people in the world, or in behavior of those people's terms. That is, they'll have more materials and energy intensive activities. But let me so I agree with that sort of framing. But I want to back up to something you said. So if the population grows well in and and I and I would conflate population and wealth per capita grows together because you know population grows with static economy it's not much of a call on materials and resources because you know is it, it, it to the point going back to the original paper we started talking about if the population grows at two percent per year and it keeps compounding that's a lot of people you know it's doubling every 35 years that's that's all it, <laughs> you keep doing that doubling that's where you get to these crazy numbers so it's not just the population growth that's relevant here What's relevant is the population growing contemporaneously with the average per capita wealth and therefore consumption of resources grows. When they happen together, at your point, the energy will only come from fossil fuels. Uh, and that is a correct conclusion for the foreseeable future, because even the most wild-eyed aspirational forecasts that the IA now have, and the you know, International Energy Agency has, uh, you know, we're out to 2050 with 60% of energy still coming from hydrocarbons. So, oh, sorry, I apologize for, yeah, I should say hydrocarbons. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, that's well, okay. I, it, fossil fuels is the, wor the, the word that we're stuck with, but which I, you know, as you know, I, I, I'm not a fan of it because I don't think they're all fossil fuels, but certainly some of them are. Maybe, maybe most of them, who knows? But it doesn't matter. They're, you know, it's oil, gas, and coal. That's what we're, that's what fuels society today. And the rhetoric that's been running loose that we have this accelerating transition is just arithmetically naive. I mean, it's, it's you know, you accelerate for a very small base, you get big, big growth rates on trivial numbers. We're still only at a few percent change in the sort of the energy appetite of the planet. But you're right. So here's, but here's where I get off your train. So if that happens, we consume lots more hydrocarbons, then we have a problem, a pollution problem. Well, well no. It depends. You have to define what you mean by pollution problem, but you probably mean CO2. But if you mean, let's talk about air, all of it, all of it, you know, real pollution, that is things that are toxic to humans to breathe and eat versus CO2, which is a, an indirect effect on the atmosphere, you know, the, the heating effect. That's a very different, different point. But from the physics and chemistry perspective, there's no reason to believe that we won't in due course. And I don't think this is true in the next decade or so, but certainly true to reasonably assume in the coming decades that we'll have a technological capacity at a reasonable price to mitigate those things. We actually know how to mitigate lots of them now. We just, they're not affordable. This is the reason, the reason there's no, quote, rapid transition or, or rapid de decline in quote, decarbonizing combustion. But it's not, it's not unreasonable to, to think that those things will get conquered. And uh, and if they were, let's just do a thought experiment before we go nuclear. If I if I say that I can imagine a internal combustion engine in the, in the foreseeable future, and I don't mean hundreds of years, but you know, decade or two, that has one tenth the emissions uh, of all all things that we define as pollutants, or near zero. Um, then that quote solves the pollution problem because we're not going to have 10 anti increase in that time frame in the demand for those fossil fuels. In fact, the increase, which while it be significant, is rather modest. I mean, 
based on the current trends, we're only talking about a one and a half percent growth rate for for hydrocarbon at the gross level for the next twenty to thirty years. So, does that mean that you, there'd be a car and like now there's a catalytic converter and there'd be more technologies so that yeah. coming out the back would be one tenth the carbon dioxide, one tenth the nitrous and, and sulfur, all those. Well, we've already cut nitrogen oxides and those kind of by 10x. So all those, um, all, the whole the whole constellation of things that we call pollution until CO2 are all all down in, in Western countries by numbers like 10x. I mean, it's the data have been tracked for a long time. So we've done that. And we can keep pushing it down, but you to, to, to the point, as you know, and it's the, the physics piece we've been talking about, you, you can't, you can't go to zero thermodynamic efficiency, but you can go to pretty close to zero emissions of things. You can scrub stuff because they're chemicals and you can scrub them. And then you have to figure out how to do these things that are are energetically efficient. But that turns out, I mean, this is the domains of of alchemy, which we call catalytic chemistry. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't believe that we've, in fact, I know if we, if you, you may do this, if you, if you follow the technical literature in those spaces, some of the, um, discoveries in recent years have been really quite remarkable. They're not, none of them have been reduced to commercial practice, but the discoveries of making deep phenomenological improvements in, in catalysis are, are tantalizingly close and not, and not in the realm of science fiction. So I don't, I mean, I'm from the timeframes that are meaningful here the next, over, over decades, the increased consumption of hydrocarbons can be associated with even more rapid delinking of hydrocarbons per dollar of GDP and a faster delinking in um, what we call the whole class of pollutants. I mean, a very easy thought experiment here. It's uncomplicated. In fact, there's a very good recent paper. I'll send, I'll send it to you after we, we record this. Uh-huh. Looking at um, the total life cycle CO2 emissions, in this case, and fuel consumption, uh, best available technology for electric vehicles and for the best available technology for internal combustion engine cars, uh, whether hybridized or not. I mean, we, w- there, there are today uh, at least six models of commercially viable internal combustion engines that come very close to doubling the thermodynamic efficiency of the average car. So this is not complicated. I mean, that would cut in half the oil use by the average car, if those vehicles were what? If we don't make them bigger and faster. Well, no, even all that thing, we have made them bigger, faster, but there's a limit to that. I think that limit is comes sooner than, uh, uh-huh. I mean, it's not, most people aren't going to want to drive a semi-trailer. So I think we've, we've already seen the saturation, the natural saturation of human comfort and proclivity of what they think is a usefully big vehicle. They don't like tiny cars because, the global trend on SUVs is overwhelming. I mean, IEA tracks this data. I mean, it's, it, went, it went from 10% of the global car fleet purchased annually in classified as SUVs 20 years ago, and now globally it's 30%. In the United States, it's over 70%. Uh, p- people like bigger cars, but they don't want to drive a semi-trailer. So we can, we can, we can, we we can easily bound that trend. And but the rate at which we can improve thermodynamic efficiency of cars is far faster than the appetite for a bigger car. Is you push it out in time, but I, I get the point is your characterization. I'm with you on if the population grows, which I think collaterally goes with economic growth, then we, we're going to use more energy, and the more energy is going to be lots of hydrocarbons. 
we're, we're going to build the windmills and solar panels too. But as we've discussed before, those require hydrocarbons. So we, but I don't, I, I see these as solvable problems because the technology is abundantly clear that we can do that easier, cheaper, better than what people are proposing, which is, you know, the, the, the windmill and solar path. If we switch to nuclear and we're going to, I mean, the number of new designs that are in the pipeline now are quite remarkable. Uh, all of them are technically viable. Many of them will be economically viable. Um, that won't lead to zero carbon emissions. It'll, but it'll be another big increment because setting aside that everything in their supply chain requires hydrocarbons, the steels still, we still have to, we're ways away from making metal, steel without metallurgical coal. You need a lot of steel and nuclear plants and you need lots of concrete and, um, you know, you, you use hydrocarbons to make them, but, but, you know, it does, it's a net reduction. And then you have to look at what could be electrified and some things can and can't be, but we'll electrify more things. That's a long run trend, but we're not going to electrify everything. So even if you assume the whole world, the world today is 20% electrified, 20% of all energy is used for electricity. In the Western world, it's a, just over a third, about 36 or 38%. Um, and I, I think the trends point to technology getting it to 50% in the West and the rest of the world will follow that. Then you're left with the other half that can't easily be electrified because the technologies don't exist in the foreseeable future. So that those are those are the hydrocarbon worlds. So even in the nuclear, the nuclear bull case, we get we get smart, we encourage nuclear power, we make the regulatory regimes more sensible. Uh, and we get, you know, lots of nukes with some windmills and solar arrays in the world and the whole carbon footprint of the electric grid really shrinks that that seems likely seems reasonable in due course probably that's half a century out just given the timelines these things take that still leaves the other half which is still going to be hydrocarbons um for a long time then but then those hydrocarbons are going to be using technologies of the kind we you know i just sort of trivially highlighted then if we get the fusion okay i think we get the fusion one day like you, I suspect, but I think we're a long way away from true break-even. You know, plug to plug to output um, conversion efficiencies are still really orders of magnitude away from where we have to be. I think it happens eventually, but I think we're so far from it. Unless there's some breakthrough, some epiphany that you know, and even when that happens, the timeline from first fusion by that true break-even. Sustainable break-in, break-even, the equivalent of the stag field reactor. Well, that hasn't happened yet. First net new energy produced by a fusion reactor all in, counted properly. We're probably 30 years from that point to beginning to have significant penetration, maybe 50 from fusion plants being built. So we're we're in a hydrocarbon world for a long time. And that would suggest that the pessimists don't think that we'll be able to do things with hydrocarbons that are a lot more efficient. So that's sort of what I get off the train. I think we can do a whole lot more efficient. That, but that's, again, this is the the next 10 to 40 years, so the year 2040, 2050, 2060. After that, I'm, I'm like you. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, and whether this is good or bad, I'm just set aside whether it's good or bad or what, you know, quote, what to do about it. I don't know that it's the case that we should assume that for all the rest of time, human beings will choose to have fewer and fewer children. Who knows? That's a 
that 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 requires a huge leap, um, social and cultural leap. But it's certainly possible. But, it, but the other the inverse thought experiment is just as possible. And then that then that if you start seeing growth rates go back up. Then it gets interesting. That's a different calculation, right? I mean, again, not the one about the thousand-year calculation, but the, the century after that, the population starts growing again. But then we're two centuries out now. We're talking because we know the demographic cycles um, are pretty much fixed. They're just fixed into the biology of human human beings and demography of, demography of societies. So we're really talking a long way in the future before we begin to have conversations about the population expanding again, where a UN will tra- change its forecast and say, oops, we're wrong. It looks like population is going to keep expanding. The evidence for that won't be obvious for quite a long time, if it were to happen at all. So it looks to me like we both like the calculation, the relevance we um, we disagree on. and <laughs> But I think the key disagreement is that is, uh or not disagreement, it's just different interpretation or projection of what might happen is that um, you see a net leveling off of, or rather it's a slow enough process and technology improves fast enough relative to that speed that when there's a problem, it's, we'll see it coming. We'll be able to handle it. I think, I I think that's the principle of this agreement in the sense of, I think we have a capacity to innovate faster than the nature of the problem's consequences. Not that there aren't always problems. And this, let me, I guess I, that's not to go back to reading this whole essay that was written, but let, what Tom wrote, but this is the last sentence is the sentence that was probably triggered to me to use the new word. <laughs> and his set, his sentence was prudence would suggest a departure from growth as soon as is possible because we are unable to judge when the damage is too great to repair. So that that was my point to you earlier, that he these big, massive hypotheticals into galaxy worth of energy use gets reduced to a conclusion that has immediate relevance to policies today. Prudence suggests a departure from growth as soon as possible. And there's a whole degrowth movement in the United States and in Europe right now, economic degrowth movement. It's a resuscitation of the um, negative population growth movement, the ZPG movement of the 60s um, on a different basis. I I profoundly disagree with that. I think prudence would suggest that, that we don't depart from growth as soon as possible because there's no evidence that the damage is too great. And in fact, the evidence is that we have the capacity to innovate at a rate faster than the the kind of damage, quote unquote, you know, the damage we're talking about. We have to define what we mean by damage, but I, I think I get the broad point of damage is we want we want a footprint on the planet so that we can live and breathe comfortably and have pleasant places to to visit, and, you know. But I just that's that to me, that is linking the big interesting theoretical mathematics to an immediate call to action. And it's and it's a call to action that's not subtle. I mean, he didn't say that this is interesting stuff and we'll have time to talk about it um, and sort it out. And we, we ought to at least be aware of it. Or or he could have said, maybe we should come up with some, some mechanism 
we'll call it a reporting mechanism because we already have reporting mechanisms. You know, the EPA has lots of reporting mechanisms for the U.S. and equivalent in Europe for monitoring things that we care about. So we we monitor, you know, sulfur emissions and we monitor lead pollution and we monitor lots of stuff. Uh, what is what is it we should be monitoring that's different that would suggest that we're we've reached the tipping point? So he's essentially implying there's a tipping point possible soon to something that's going to be bad. And I don't know. I just, I just don't, I, the calculation doesn't make that, doesn't prove that point uh, that there's a tipping point now that would call for action, a possible tipping point now or soon that would call for action immediately to move to, because essentially the call is to move to degrowth. Departure from growth is, is the inverse of saying we should move to degrowth. What does, what else otherwise, what does it mean to say a departure from growth as soon as possible? Well, if my read of what my interpretation of what he's saying is that we have a system that will grow unless we stop it from growing. And I know you disagree with this, but the longer we wait to stop it from growing, he's saying the harder it will be. Yeah, I guess. So it's not that there's a tipping point now. It's just a system that gets harder and harder to change well, I know. the longer we wait. I don't know. That, that, so the sooner we change it, the better, but see that, or the easier. That logic has a presumption in it, which I, I don't think is provable. Why Why do we assume it'll be harder? We're, we're assuming today it'll be harder. That that makes presumption about technology, not just human nature. First, if if human human beings have have changed some behaviors in the past in the, in the, in the face of technology, but that I don't mean behaviors like, you know, love, hate, war, <laughs> none of those get changed. It's, so it seems to be wired into us, but how society operates has, uh, has made radical changes. We went from being an agrarian society to the quote, urban slash industrial society very rapidly, like historical terms. That was a big change. We, we chose to make that change. It was huge, mm-hmm. huge change, massive. And the rest of the world wants to do that, whether for better work. But that was a massive change in the Western world, and it's just as a, a point of capacity to make a big change, which is driven by knowledge and technology. The presumption that we won't be able to make a equal or bigger change in the future is a pure guess, and it requires uh, a pretty significant, and I'll say again, moral judgment to say that I know enough that we can't make that adjustment later. So I'm going to force people. We have to find a way to force people to make the adjustment now. Now, if, as you and I have talked about, if, if you want to convince people to make the adjustment now behaviorally, okay. But achieving that adjustment, degrowth now, based on this kind of assumption that we won't be able to deal with an issue in the future, that, that really requires a huge leap that I don't think is supportable by what history has shown or what I what I even think is in play right now with respect to our capacities to innovate in the near future. It's a it feels very anti-human to me to make that so because human beings like growth, want growth. I had been doing this for all of human history. Now we're telling people, I know better. We, as he writes, the academics have a special responsibility to, you know, illuminate these long-term threats. Okay. You go, girl, illuminate them. But, <laughs> You've been wrong so often, not you, but, you know, you academics. I guess I'm a quasi-academic sometimes, but it's uh, (laughs) – that's the part that's a problem because, again, it has embedded in it a presumption that there is a – which is correct, that we can't – 
we can't know what we can't reverse. Obviously, you can't prove a negative. But we, we're presuming that we know that we will not have the capacity to do something about it when we learn or discover it. When, when, when we see the signal, that we won't be able to do anything about the signal because it'll be too late. That makes a lot of assumptions about the capacity of people in the future, technologically or organizationally, which I, again, that is a pure guess that about which there's no science uh, that prove anything. There's no calculation that can prove anything except to use examples from history and make a reasonable judgment about the future. So his examples from history, he just believes implicitly that there are no examples in history that suggest we will be able to adapt, let's say. And, okay, we can agree to disagree on that one, but I think the examples in history suggest we could. And and I and I, that's why, and again, why I wrote my book is I think the, the examples before us right now in our very recent history on the changes in phenomenology and so much of what we do to operate our civilization are now at a you know nascent pivot that's close to as significant as the pivot maybe more significant than the pivot from agrarian to an industrial society well for my part i greatly value this conversation and it's uh i hope that i've understood your point and and the and I think I understand the um, the inapplicability that you see of his perspective and advice. And be, I mean, there's so many other topics I'd love to talk to you about. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I now have a copy of The Cloud Revolution, your book. And I'm going to read, I, before, I think this was before we started recording, that I said that I'd, I was still, I'd barely gotten into like chapter two or three partly because the introduction was fascinating enough to me where you lay down the philosophy of what's to come. And there were a couple of paragraphs that were deeply rich to me and I'd love to talk to you about it. So I propose leaving an open invitation for you to come back. Um, I'd love to come back. But tell me, um, we, won't talk, we won't dive into it today, but I'm, I'm curious what if you, if you can easily tell me which at least one example of a paragraph that you found intriguing, because that will at least uh, prepare me to think about those points for our next conversation. So one of them was very close. There, um, there's a couple actually very close to what we we're talking about here. So it was under the section, belief is the wellspring of dynamism and innovation. And you said very different actions are called for if you believe instead that a new boom is imminent and that unbridled capitalism, and parenthetically, there are no true free markets, only freer ones, and in parentheses, is the only mechanism that can unlock the complex and intertwined dynamic of the market that leads to new mass flourishing. The debate about the right political model for our country is thus a debate about what people believe in, believe about what technology promises for the future. And I felt, oh wait, I'm, I forgot the paragraph before that. The world of techno-pessimists leads to demands for more government control Socialized, I'm sorry, this is a paragraph I should have started with. The world of techno-pessimists leads, leads to demands for more government control, socialized medicine, more mandates to achieve preferred social outcomes, and far bigger safety nets, not least a universal basic, basic income. And I felt like there was a, there's techno-pessimists, and I don't feel like I'm a techno-pessimist, <laughs> and I don't feel like I call for those things, but yeah. we disagree. Yeah. And so I felt well, like yeah. there's... 
I, I guess what I'm I'm saying is that that you're you don't think of yourself as a techno pessimist. The point I was making, and not as an insult, by the way, because there's a lot of reasons for pessimism in a lot of things in the world. But the framing of the uh, discussion that we just had about if we get you know more population, what do you think will happen? They want to be wealthier, which you and I agree on. And then then we've got a problem because we're going to use more hydrocarbons. You and I both agree. Mm-hmm. How much more is you know, immaterial, really? And that creates problems. And and in your mind, that creates problems. In my mind, um, the solutions are abundantly clear. And the ones that one can even see now, and that tech, to think that that creates problems is a version that comes from a techno-pessimistic uh, mindset or assumption, whereas I'm coming at it from a obviously a techno-optimist, I prefer to think of it realist, assumption that those problems could be conquered and therefore are not are not reasons to restructure our society. That's that's sort of where the political argument gets infused in it. But in, implicit in how you frame that, or just last few minutes of conversation, is is a form of techno pessimism. It's not Luddites. I don't mean Luddism. I don't. You know, I, as you know, I write about the Luddites. Were right. I mean, they lost their jobs, and they were right about what automation does to jobs. Um, specific jobs disappear. So that's there's a, there's a lot to, um, to unravel this. As you get more into the book, you'll see for the last chapter, I spend more time on the long-term the long-term innovation question, which gets closer to the timeframes we've been talking about. But I really tried to focus the book much more on the next decade, you know, f- for obvious reasons, because first it's easier. <laughs> uh-huh. And I also have to think it's, there's some bigger changes coming than most people realize. Uh, everybody's always talking about accelerating change. Oh, most things haven't accelerated very much for a while. Yeah, actually, your book is the first, every time I read a book and it says, like the introduction always switches, it often at some point says, and here's unit one will be this, unit two will be that. And I always like disengage at that point. And yours was the first one where I engaged more. I was like, what are the four units? And in one of them, I was thinking, uh, I think the third one, I thought, no, the second part. You say, in part two, we will turn to the nature of the cloud and the world as the world's newest and most remarkable infrastructure. Humanity has seen the long journey in the technologies that create and use communication systems. Many people thought that we had reached the pinnacle with the internet, but the cloud is a profound change in scale and function that is greater than the transformation from telegraphy to cell phones. It is the first civilization scale information infrastructure with no precedent in history. And then I thought of the title of your book, The Cloud Revolution. And I think most people will read cloud as what they know of the cloud. Exactly. And what you mean by cloud is something much more expansive. Yeah, it is. And I think I think your title may undersell your book. Yeah, we had a fight about that. I appreciate that. Um, so I that's a hard, it, yeah, you're, I think you're right. Um, we, I struggle with my publisher on what we should title it. I was going to just call it the Roaring 2020s and put the subtitle about technology. The problem with that, that is a lead title is it sounds like you're talking about flappers and jazz age and sort of a political book. Oh, yeah. And and then to call it something like the Great Convergence, which is a or the Grand Nexus. I just gave a lecture at Northwestern University and I titled the lecture based on my book, The Grand Nexus. And uh, I showed a Venn diagram as my first slide, which showed materials, energy, and information. And their intersection. I said, that's it. That's the whole universe. Everything about civilization and the universe is 
at the intersection of those three things, atoms, energy, and information. That's it. There's nothing else. And is a tax is sort of the macro taxonomy, but you can look at what the idea that there's a limit to information. Information, I'm, I contend, is essentially unlimited, and energy is functionally unlimited. But the number of atoms in the universe are limited. But the number is so big, and the number of combinations so great that there's no limits to innovation. So that's that simplistic kind of construct. And then you have to go from that to specifics. So well, give me an example. You can't just say there's lots of innovation coming. So that's sort of what I, what I try to do with the book is show people what the innovations are that are coming based on not hypotheses, but things that are happening and have happened. And But you're right. I mean, the cloud is a thread. You'll see the information utility, the information infrastructure is the thread through the whole book because it is so consequential. But, you know, later in the book, you'll see I write about H.G. Wells, who called, he, he wrote a book called World Brain. I think it was the title of this book. He imagined a central... He imagined the cloud. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, we'll talk about that. That's good to know. We'll talk about it another time. I'd be delighted to continue the exploration. We can get off of dystopian uh, of the next 50 years and 100,000 years when we consume all the energy in the galaxy and maybe <laughs> just focus on the next decade. That'd be. Well, I welcome you back. And, uh, um, and I've been listening to your podcast a lot too. So I, I'll put, I, I think I put links into it before, but if not, I'll, I'll make sure to put those in and the links to your book as well. And I look forward to next time already. Likewise. Thanks, John. Appreciate it. Talk to you again soon. You bet. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.